Mark does not give us a lot to work with in this gospel. Normally we get the three temptations and the, like all of the conversation between our Lord and uh, the absolute humiliation to which he subjects the evil one. Um, but at least we know that happens in the context of the, de- in the temptation in the desert. Uh, he's sent out there, driven out there by the Holy Spirit, as it were. Um, and he's there for 40 days, um, tempted by the evil one. It's good on some level that Mark doesn't give us those details. Because in that, he actually gives us a bit of, of, well, we can say guidance with regards to how to deal with temptation. Like, we don't bandy with the evil one. We don't try and show him our intelligence and prove him wrong and all these kinds of things. You know how temptation works. And you know how uh, much more intelligent he is than we are. The minute you start um, considering it, talking about it, well, you've already lost, so to speak. It's just too powerful as far as that goes. Um, and most of us aren't having, if, if you're having conversations face-to-face with the evil one, give me a call and we'll talk about that later. Um, that's not something I hope is happening in your life. And yet, uh, we do recognize that as little things sort of show up uh, in the context of our daily spiritual struggle, um, striving to live holy and upright lives, uh, to worship God as he has asked, as he calls, as he knows we need, really, and to love my neighbor uh, appropriately and accordingly. Um, we know there, there are things that get in the way. Mark isn't as worried about those things. He's much more focused and interested in what comes after. It's, it's almost as if the presence of evil in the world is not even worth considering. It's not even worth wondering about or worrying about. And that makes us ask a different kind of question. Why is it that it's so easy to think about and worry about? It's almost as if I don't have to go out to the, to the, to the desert to experience temptation. It shows up at my doorstep, which is a little more frustrating. And yet, again, St. Paul, St. Mark says, who cares? Why don't we just throw temptation out the window, ignore it, not even consider that it has any kind of power over my life. Why? Because that's, isn't that the truth of the gospel? Isn't that the reality of what Christ has done? He goes out into the desert to conquer evil, and he returns in the power of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the evil one is destroyed and conquered. Everything he does in the, in the context of his earthly ministry is a prefigurement and foreshadowing and, and find its culmin, finds its culmination in the cross. And so the 40 days there, we can think back to the Israelites in 40 years in the desert, fine. But Moses, 40 days in the mountain. But it's pointing to the absolute crushing of the head of the serpent that happens when he dies for our sins on the cross. And so when he rises victorious on Easter Sunday, which is ultimately what we are all looking forward to, when he rises victorious, he comes forward, I mean, it's, it's, it's triumphant. And you can see how, as he meets the apostles on a Easter Sunday evening, and as he appears to various disciples here and there uh, while he remains here before his ascension, 
how he enters into their, to their darkness and their, their, their doubt, the sort of fogginess of human existence. Not really sure what happened. And he breaks in and says, peace be with you. Because I have conquered the evil one. And now because you are my disciples, that victory also belongs to you. There's no need to worry and think and focus so much on, oh no, what's going to happen with the, in the context of temptation? I get to look at temptation, throw it out, and move forward in total and confident hope in the victory of my God in my own life. That's what the, the virtue of hope is. It's not that I hope something happens. The virtue of hope is a confidence in God, it's a trust in God that He is faithful to His promises. He's giving me constantly, continually the help and the grace that I need in this moment. And also, at the end of things, I receive the promise that he has given to me already. And so he comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reason we hear about Noah in the first reading today, he just spent, okay, it's a little longer than 40 days. But at the very least, he had the 40 days and 40 nights of rain for the flood and the whole thing. This indication of, well, Noah, God has invited you into this sort of fascinating relationship with him, told you to build an ark in the desert. Okay, sounds like a good idea. And he does, responds to the call of God, does something that that, that seems apparently absurd on the surface of it. And we see how through faith Noah is saved. But what's going on in the heart and the mind of Noah during those 40 days? You can't imagine there was no temptation. Is this, is this ever going to end? I mean, God didn't give him the details. Noah had to live that one out or ride that one out, we can say, on the ark. And so every moment of every day, he's, he's, he's trusting. Okay, God, this is the plan. I see how it's working out so far, but how's it going to happen in the end? I don't know. And so when Noah finally is able to disembark finally able to step on solid ground again. And God gives him this covenant. I'm establishing my covenant with you. One of the things that God is recognizing or inviting Noah to recognize is that the evil is behind him. The evil has been taken care of. And this is the truth that our Lord proclaims when he comes back from the desert. Evil has been taken care of. The, the darkness is behind us. So here we are, the beginning of the 40 days. And there can be a temptation to go back into Lent saying, well, the, the darkness isn't quite behind us. I still got to keep on doing the thing, whatever it is, my penances and all those kinds of things. And maybe someday the, the victory will come. That would be the absolute wrong way to approach the season of Lent. We approach Lent first and foremost with the knowledge that the victory has been accomplished, with the knowledge that the darkness is behind us. It's already accomplished. It's already taken care of. And so we entered into the season of Lent then, knowing that, well, okay, the darkness is behind me. Maybe it's a better way to say it. But there's some people out there for whom maybe the darkness doesn't feel so behind them. 
living in the middle of all kinds of awful things, living in the middle of various kinds of sin, whether they know it or not, and struggling with the question of whether or not God really is there for them. And when you and I have the knowledge that God is, in fact, here, both for me and for you and for all of them, don't I have the opportunity to proclaim with our Lord? No, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can still repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is not like an accusatory thing. Repentance is like the light shining in the darkness. There is a way out of this. Finally, thanks be to God. If I still think I'm in the darkness, if I still think I'm in the desert, if I still think I have to wrestle with the evil one, then I've missed the point. Certainly, I'm not excluding from this concept that I'm proclaiming to you the fact that the evil one still shows up at my doorstep in various ways and tries to get me to forget what Christ has done or tries to get me to think that maybe the victory of Christ wasn't as effective as he said it was or is it doesn't apply here anymore. He has no power here. That's lame. It's absurd. All I have to do is look at the darkness of the cross. That's why we hold our Lord up there in the cross for us. So that we can be reminded in the midst of our own darkness that Christ went there too. And on the other side of that darkness, again, is the victory of Easter Sunday. Now this is our proclamation. This is the light that we as Christians get to bring into the world. There's people who need it, people who are, who are I mean, dying for it. Just hoping beyond hope that maybe there's something out there for them. I want to be able to proclaim that. You want to be able to proclaim that. One of the ways that the church invites us to proclaim that reality isn't just me up here in the pulpit talking about the scriptures. People hear the scriptures and they don't believe the scriptures right now. Why is that? Bad example is the short answer. And I'm not pointing my finger at you guys either. You all know the church hasn't exactly been a beacon of holiness in all kinds of ways. And I can't claim to be a perfect beacon myself. And so here we are. The church invites us into this season of Lent to engage more deeply in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. What does prayer do for me? You know it's an act of humility. It's also a way in which we proclaim to the world that I'm not living just for the sake of this world. When other people see me in prayer, and when they see you in prayer, leaving aside the necessary obligations of daily life to go and seek something higher, they say, that man, that woman believes. Maybe there's something in this life that I didn't see before. When I engage in fasting and train my will to be able to say no to things that are inherently good for the sake of being united to my God, they say, that person is willing to suffer even for their faith? That seems a little strange. 
Maybe they know something that I don't know. Maybe there's a happiness in this world beyond physical pleasure. Especially if I can maintain that joyful attitude in the context of all of it. I'm called to. I'm supposed to. That's what Christ invites me to. Don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. Let everybody know that you're fasting. Anoint your head and wash your face. That was the gospel from Wednesday, from Ash Wednesday. And let's not forget almsgiving. Not just an obligation, as it were, but a real act of charity. A real gift to another. Not just for the, sa- for the sake of saying with the Pharisee in the parable, I fast three times a week and I pay tithes on all of my income. Who cares? Nobody cares about that. Now, what we care about is that I'm actually using the good things that God has given me for the sake of those who have less. Because that's why God gave me more, for the sake of those who have less. Maybe this person's faith is affecting them in such a deep way that they're willing to go without, that they're willing to see the need in somebody else and take care of them in the same way that God takes took care of me and takes care of me. What a beautiful witness. What a beautiful example. See, God has given us so much, certainly materially, but even more spiritually. And if I am impoverished in my understanding of the spiritual gift, the victory, the hope that God has given, there's no way I'm going to be able to share it with anybody else. Hope is an essential virtue, and it's even more essential, I think, in the modern world. People feel hopeless. And so Christ comes to give us hope. He says, I've conquered the evil one. I've been to the desert and back, and I survived. I didn't just survive. I won. I crushed the head of the serpent. Thanks be to God. And so he says to all of us, and he asks us to preach to the world, this really is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel.